Let me then welcome you to um, week four of Bible Overview. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us, and we do trust that you will uh, know much benefit. Uh, you will find yourself challenged, I'm quite sure, but I hope you'll find yourself excited and encouraged as well as uh, Jeremy works through our evening. I'm going to start, as always, with a, a brief word of prayer, and then I'll hand over to Jeremy. Let's pray. God, our Father, uh, thank you for the opportunity that we have again this evening to turn ourselves to your word, and we uh, rely upon your Holy Spirit himself to teach us through Jeremy. We pray that uh, you would help him, uh, give him good voice when he's uh, struggled a little bit with his, his throat, and grant that uh, he may know a freshness in his own mind, uh, that anointing of your spirit, that as he opens up the scriptures, as he leads us through your word, uh, our hearts may indeed be warmed again in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look to you, Father, both for uh, him as he speaks, for ourselves as we hear. Uh, may he speak and we hear to your praise and glory. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. And without further ado, uh, I'll hand over to uh, you, uh, Jeremy. Over to you. Great. Thanks very much, Jerry. Um, I hope you can hear me and see me properly. I'm on a different machine to last week. Um, there's always some glitch when evangelicals get together to have a meeting. Um, hopefully my only glitch has come and gone tonight. Now, we're going to be in, uh, starting in 1 and 2 Samuel tonight, um, which is a key new stage in the Bible story. Um, just to recap where we were before, um, you'll remember Israel have now taken the promised land. Um, Joshua tells that story. It makes out as though at the end of Joshua that they have completely taken the promised land, but we know there are certain hints in Joshua and certainly at the beginning of Judges that actually Israel did leave some enemies still in the territory. So there were Canaanites with their immoral practices and their false gods who were very much still active when Israel took the land. And of course, God had told the people to totally wipe out the enemy, which seems shocking to us. But of course, the whole goal of that was because God did not want Israel to compromise itself with the other nations around. And of course, that's exactly what the story of Judges tells us. There were a whole series of judges who needed to rescue Israel, in fact, because they compromised with uh, the nations around then they got into trouble because God allowed them to be oppressed. Here is the, the cyclical pattern that we thought about last time. Then Israel, in deep distress, cry out to God and graciously and mercifully again and again and again, 13 times, God sends them a judge or a savior. Savior is just another good word for a judge because that's what they were. They saved Israel. Um, Israel is delivered. And then Israel lives in a period of peace during the days of that particular judge. And then, of course, um, when that judge dies, Israel starts disobeying again, enters this whole cycle of oppression and so on. And at the very end of Judges, you'll remember there's moral decline. Um, there is this prostitute who gets cut up and sent to all the 12 tribes. As the tribes are saying, look at what we've become. We've abandoned God totally. Um, there was Micah at the end of Judges who had his own idol at home. He was having privatized religion. He had totally rejected the corporate religion of Israel. So there was privatized religion. There was immorality rife. And it was a, a, a scenario of despair, really. And Judges keep saying, at that time, Israel had no king. Everyone did what they saw fit in their own eyes. 
And of course, we look at our culture today, and this phrase, everyone did fit in their own eyes, is exactly what we're seeing in modern day Scotland. This is a nation that has known Judeo-Christian values for thousands of years, really. Um, we are a country who, at the beginning of the 1900s, were sending out more missionaries across the globe than any other nation per head of population. In fact, there was a great missionary conference in, the, in 1910 in Edinburgh, where there was a, a thought of world evangelization stemming from Edinburgh. Now, of course, a hundred or so years later, we have abandoned the God of our fathers. The numbers of, of Christians has declined in our nation. And as we get rid of Judeo-Christian values, what happens? Everyone does what is fit in their own eyes. Everyone does exactly how they please. That's what happens. When we get rid of God from the culture, it descends into moral chaos. So the book of Judges, though it's thousands of years old, is incredibly relevant to life in Scotland today. And indeed, life in the West, um, our moral values have disappeared. We don't know what male and female is anymore. We don't know what good and evil is. We call evil good and good evil and so on. You don't need me to enumerate how many of Christian values have been marginalized from the nation. So Judges is incredibly relevant. And the answer, of course, in Judges was, was that Israel needed a king. And that's what brings us on to 1 and 2 Samuel. This is the start of kingship in Israel. Now, I want to say at this stage that there are what we would call three key offices throughout the Old Testament that find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And you'll have heard this trio before, I'm sure. We have a prophet, we have a priest, and we have a king. Prophet, priest, and king. These are different roles that different key people played throughout the Old Testament. But no one person played all three roles together. And in fact, there's an in interesting case later on in the, in the Old Testament with King Uzziah. You remember he was the king in Isaiah 6 in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and so on. Uzziah was condemned by God because he tried to con combine the role of king, which he was by right, which God has appointed him, with the role of priest. And he tried to offer sacrifices. And that's what got him into trouble. God condemned him because he combined roles that he wasn't able to, or that he shouldn't have combined. Um, we have prophets in Israel. Prophets were the spokesmen of God. They declared the word of the Lord, often with the phrase, thus saith the Lord. So you have kings, you have prophets, and you have priests. Priests were the people who brought people to God. They offered the sacrifices that enabled a worshiper to come into God's presence. So you have these roles, prophet, priest, and king. And Israel cannot find the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, or the perfect king. You can't find the perfect prophet whose words you can entirely rely on. There are false prophets around. You cannot find the perfect priest. You remember Aaron's sons were, were troublemakers, and Nadab and Abihu are, are struck dead by God because they offered unholy fire. And the, the, the problem with immoral priests becomes huge at the beginning of 1 Samuel, actually. And we cannot find the perfect king. And we'll find in our story, of course, King David becomes the one who is, who is nearest to that designation. He is a man after God's own heart. But his sin with Bathsheba, of course, and the decline of his kingdom shows that even the great King David had this sin issue that we all have. And Israel cannot find the leaders that can lead them to God, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king. But of course, that is precisely who we find in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Jesus is the prophet par excellence. He doesn't just say, thus saith the Lord. He says, 
I am. Listen to me. You have heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say, I come with the very authority of God. I am the living word of God. I'm not just a mouthpiece of God who sends out messages that I've received from elsewhere. I am in my very being, the word of God, the living oracles of God. I am the perfect prophet. I am also the perfect priest. Christ is the only one who can say that. Uh, Christ in his character, of course, was absolutely perfect. You remember we, we said that when a, a priest sinned in the Old Testament, a bull had to be offered, one of the biggest offerings available because it was such a serious thing when a priest, the leader of God's people, sinned. You offered the same level of offering as the whole community of Israel offered when they had sinned. So sins of a priest were huge. But of course, of Jesus, we can say, who, who can accuse me of sin? No one could. Even Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. He was talking just about... Uh, the, the crucifixion scenario, nothing that was worthy of crucifixion, but his, his words take on a deeper significance when it comes to Christ. We can find no fault in this man. He is the perfect priest who can bring us to God. And of course, not only is he the priest, he is also the sacrifice. He combines those two things. He is the priest who brings the people to God, and he is the one who sacrifices his own body fully on the tree, like a, like a worship offering to God, but it's also a sin offering. As we go back to all the offerings that Leviticus teaches us about, Jesus combines all of those wonderful things in his, in his, his own person. He is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and of course, he is the perfect king. We will come tonight in, in uh, 2 Samuel 7 to one of the great passages that point to an eternal king who will sit on David's throne. Jesus is that king. Even David himself, whose, whose star adorns the flag of Israel and who is revered as this great king in Israel's history, David could not match the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is the king who will lead us to God. So have these three ideas in mind, prophet, priest, and king. And when we come, of course, to 1 and 2 Samuel, the emphasis is very much on kingship. The people call for a king. Before we get into kingship, though, um, the early chapters of Samuel, very moving. It's a very moving personal story. It's the personal story of a woman who is destitute, um, who will be Samuel's mother. Now, when you think about it, you have this huge book of Judges where there's this huge moral decline in the nation as a whole. The nation has completely lost its way. And then on either side of this book of Judges, where it's moral decline, you have the story of two simple, vulnerable women. One is Ruth on one side of the story. The other is Samuel's mother, Hannah, on the other side of the story. Hannah, of course, cannot have kids. Ruth is the enemy who gets brought into God's kingdom and so on. But what we need to understand is these women, these women by themselves, who you would consider as, as, as completely unimportant, as people who, you know, the, the culture wouldn't recognize them. Yet these are the people through whom God will bring his plan into being. Ruth before Judges, Hannah after Judges. And, and Hannah, of course, when um, she appears before Eli and so on, weeps before him. Um, uh, but she goes home with the promise that she will have this son um, she has the son, Samuel, and she promises to dedicate Samuel um, for all his days to the temple of God. What a decision that was for a mother to make. A mother who had waited uh, half her life to have a child. A little bit like, like Abraham and Sarah waiting half their life to have the child of the promise. And then when they have the child, God says, you've got to go and sacrifice that child. Um, with Hannah, it's the same thing. She's waited for this child. 
God grants her the child. She rejoices, but she also makes this vow. I am going to leave my son in the temple of God. And if you're a parent tonight, I guess there's a very simple practical application here. We raise our children so that we might hand them over to the Lord, don't we? We raise our children not just to have a flourishing education or to learn good manners or to be good citizens or to get a great job. All of those are important things, but they're secondary. We raise our children, we, we raise our grandchildren to be men and women of God. That is our prayer for them before our prayer for anything else. We don't want them to have earthly success before they have a spiritual relationship with God. And maybe you have children today and um, they're not very successful in earthly terms, but they know God personally and that's all that matters. And I'm sure that a lot of us are mourning over children and grandchildren who, who are very successful in the world's eyes, but they don't know Jesus. We want to give them to the temple in that sense. We want to hand them over to God, but it hasn't happened yet. All I can tell you is I feel the same with my three boys, 17-year-old, 15, and 9 coming 10. I don't know what decisions they're going to make in their lives to follow Jesus or not. I want to pass on my passions for Christ to them as much as possible, but it's up to them eventually. But I realize now that my role as a parent is not just to uh, teach and instruct them as much as possible, but to pray. And if you have children, maybe children who are old now, who have left home and have gone their own way, keep on your knees. Keep on your knees like the persistent widow. Father, I'm asking you again. This is the biggest passion of my life. You have seen the tears that I have shed about my children, about my grandchildren. Will you, Lord, by your mercy, reach down and make them yours? One of the tragedies sometimes in a Christian family is that you come across Christian parents and they're just thrilled that their Johnny has become a doctor or that their Amy has passed the bar exam and is a lawyer. They're just thrilled with that. But they're not going to church anymore. They're not following any kind of Christian life. And you get the feeling that the parents actually don't mind so much about that because they're gaining earthly success. May we not be that. May we be people who bring our tears to God about our children and grandchildren just as Hannah shed tears and then left her son Samuel at God's disposal in the temple. Now, of course, that decision that this one lady, Hannah, made absolutely transformed the life of Israel. Samuel was the last and the greatest of the judges. Samuel follows God. Samuel loves God. And Samuel will be the one who will bring Israel towards kingship. So that decision that one lady made was able, in a sense, to rewrite Israel's history, a, a history that a whole nation had gone wrong on. Judges is a disgrace how Israel behaves. And yet this one woman in her act of faith changes the story, rewrites the story of Israel for the future. We wouldn't have had a King David. We wouldn't have had a, a King Solomon had it not been for Hannah, who brought Samuel into the world by faith. And Samuel then becomes the word of God to the nation and to these kings who will follow after him. So there's an encouragement for us. If we feel, I don't count, I'm just a housewife getting on with my life. What does my faith matter? It's the power brokers that matter. No, not at all. And in fact, Hannah will sing a hymn in 1 Samuel about how God brings the mighty down and he will lift up the lowly. And it's precisely that kind of hymn that Mary sings, Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
In fact, there is a mirror between 1 Samuel 1 and 2 and Luke's Gospel 1 and 2. You'll have lots of songs that Mary sings and Elizabeth sings. Women actually take center stage at the birth of Jesus in Luke's Gospel. When you come to the man, Zachariah, he's struck dumb. Every woman's dream. And it's the women who take center stage. They, the lowly ones of faith, rewrite the story of Israel. It is through this teenager lady called Mary. Who is she? Nobody knows her. She's from nowhere. She's from Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? Even the disciples say that. And yet Mary, through her faith, becomes mother of the Son of God, who will rewrite the, the future of Israel with his own blood and his own body. It is quite extraordinary. There you see simple women of faith. We saw them at the beginning of Exodus as well, didn't we, with those with those uh, midwives who, who kind of fibbed their way through um, the Israelite children that were born. Um, they took their lives in their hands, but through them, of course, through their faith, through their courage, Moses survives and becomes God's savior. Do you see how you go through? The, the, the faith of simple women throughout the scripture rewrites the story of Israel. Anyway, enough of that for the minute. Um, when we get into chapter 8, and we're going to be skipping parts of Sam, Samuel because we've got to capture the big story here. The people call for a king. But God is annoyed that the people call for a king, not because he doesn't want them to have a king, but because they wanted to have a king like the other nations. In other words, their desire for a king had showed that they had rejected God. They didn't want God to be their leader. They wanted to have what you might call a trendy king, a king who looked good in the world's eyes, a king with his battle armor, a tall king, a good-looking king, a king who could show the power of Israel to the watching world. And Israel could be like the other nations. That's what it wanted to, wanted to be. And of course, that's precisely the opposite of what God wanted her to be. God wanted Israel to stand out from the nations, to be set apart, to be salt and light, as Jesus will put it to, to, in New Testament terms, Matthew 5, to Christians. But Israel wanted a trendy king. So it wasn't their, their first desire that this king would lead them to God. It was their desire that this king would, be, would help them to mix it with the world around. And I want you to notice as we go through the early chapters of 1 Samuel, uh, uh, appearances are so important. Israel's looking for a king for appearances sake, not because they seek God. And then of course, in the search for a king, you'll remember the story of David later on, all of, all of Jesse's strapping sons are brought up. They look the outwardly impressive sons, but none of them are approved by God. Is there, uh, Jesse, do you have another son? And, and, and David, this, the youngest of the family, the one who kind of took the pack lunches to the men at war, he wasn't even involved in the war. It is David whom God approves of. Outward appearances mean nothing. David was a man after God's own heart. And of course, when the first king is chosen, which was a, a disastrous move, really, um, Saul, you can see from the early days, he's tall, he's good looking, he's precisely the kind of king that the people want. They're very excited about him, but he's compromised. In fact, when he is told that he's going to be king in a very strange story involving lost donkeys and all of this, and then Samuel telling him, you're going to be anointed king of Israel, Saul wants to run for it. Um, he's compromised like the people around him, and he hides in the luggage. Actually, he doesn't want to be the king. And we realize right away there's concerns about him. In a sense, Saul reflects where the people of Israel are. They are a compromised people. Saul is a compromised king. And later on, when he becomes king... Um, you have, he is given instructions by Samuel, look, go before um, this battle happens, wait for me, 
um, I'm going to offer sacrifices in the name of the Lord. And, and Saul discovers that Samuel is late, late coming to the party. So Saul does what Uzziah will later do. He takes on the role of priest himself and disobeys. Um, Samuel also tells him to go and wipe out a certain group of people. They need to wipe out all the men and women and children and the animals in that group, as is consistent with, with this taking over the Holy Land. That's exactly what God told Joshua to do. Samuel tells Saul to spare no one. And as Samuel is coming to investigate whether Saul has obeyed or not, he comes out with that famous line, is that the sound of bleating sheep I hear? In other words, um, Saul, you've been half-hearted. You haven't gone the whole way and wiped out the enemy. You have allowed yourself to be compromised. You have allowed Israel to be compromised as you go. So clearly, Saul is not the ideal king. He is the king that the people wanted. God, could I put it this way, reluctantly gave in to their request. Not because he didn't want them to have a king, but he wanted them to have a king after his own heart. But God responds to his people's disobedience again with grace. And while Saul is being rejected, God is bringing about his own king, David, who is a man after God's own heart. And we first meet David, of course, before he ever becomes king, but he's showing his character qualities as king. When we first meet Saul, Saul's hiding in the luggage. That's not the kind of king you need. When we first meet David, we have the story of David and Goliath. And David, of course, very famously marches up the hill to take on this giant that the rest of Israel are terrified of. You'll remember the story. The Israelites are in fear and trepidation. Here is the giant Goliath. Um, and the people respond to Goliath as the previous generation had responded to the giants of the land of Canaan. Do you remember that? Um, 12 men went to spy in Canaan. When the 12 men went to spy, 10 of them thought we can't go into the promised land because there are giants there, giants that we're scared of. And even though God has promised us this land, we're not going to accept that promise by faith. We're not going to go in and take the land um, because there are giants there. Here's exactly the same scenario in microcosm. Here is this giant, Goliath. And if you uh, check his history back, Goliath of Gath, he has a link to the previous giant's in the book of Genesis. In fact, the writer several times in 1 Samuel will use the word Goliath of Gath, Goliath of Gath, every single time so that we'll check. Here is the typical giant that Israel has always been afraid of. And the people are cowering. And David, who is the last person on earth, you would think would be willing to take on a giant like this, he comes and says with absolute bravado, who is this Philistine, this savage who defies the army of the Lord. David is so confident in the Lord, not himself, he's so confident in the Lord. He knows the Lord has given the people victory over the Philistines. He knows that he will slay Goliath, even though the odds seem absolutely impossible. And of course, with Saul's armor, which doesn't quite fit him, um, he decides to take off the armor and he goes up the hill just in his own clothing. He doesn't go in the protection that could have been provided for him he goes up the hill to face the giant with just his sling and we know the story don't we how david uh, throws the sling nails goliath in the forehead and then goes and chops his head off another great gory story that all the teenagers love to read when they first read the bible they love all the blood blood and guts at least my kids do maybe they're just perverse that way but that's how it goes what's that story about Maybe you have heard sermons say, you know, uh, Goliath represents the giants in our lives, the things that we are afraid of. And we just need to, you know, trust in our courage and God will give us faith and he'll help us to take on the giants. That is not what the story is about. 
the story is prefiguring Christ. Because Christ will also walk up a hill. And Christ will take on the giant that leaves us all trembling and paralyzed and unable to move. And Christ will not go up that hill in any armor, not any human armor. He goes naked to a cross. He goes simply with his own divine character because he is going to slay that dragon of sin, that dragon of Satan. He is going to slay the enemy by giving up his life, by laying down his life. And David defeating Goliath while the people of Israel are paralyzed and winning that glorious victory for them is a picture for us of Christ who has won that glorious victory by going up the hill to take on sin and death and hell and he has come out a conqueror and we who were paralyzed because we were slaves to sin we could do nothing about it we lived in fear and trembling the devil held death over our heads Hebrews says now our conqueror has won it for us that's really how to interpret a story like David and Goliath so David becomes this figure of Christ taking on the giant on behalf of the paralyzed people um, but of course all is not smooth in David's life um, because David is growing in his popularity Saul is growing in his jealousy and we have this strange scenario of God actually allowing evil spirits to invade Saul's mind so that his jealousy moves into a kind of insanity and we see again this difficult story as we saw with with Pharaoh earlier on, once Saul had made his own desires clear that he was jealous of David and wanted him out of the way, God, in a sense, confirms in Saul his own jealousy and takes that jealousy to its ultimate extent, even inciting him with an evil spirit. Um, so Saul is now um, in the hands of the evil one, as it were. He is jealous, wanting to kill David, and David has to run for his life. This young lad who has been promised by Samuel, has been anointed at a secret ceremony by Samuel, you will be the king of Israel. David knows in his heart that he's been promised this by God, you will be the king of Israel, but he has to run for his life for years. He runs for his life as Saul chases him. And I'm sure you'll know these stories from Sunday school days. They're just great stories. Isn't the Bible full of great stories which capture the imagination? The stories are true, they're historical, but they're also a fabulous read. And uh, they keep us going. One, one and two Samuel was a great read. But during this period of time when David is running for his life, he becomes, if you like, the, the archetypal righteous sufferer. And a lot of the Psalms, Psalms 1 to 42 in particular, will be written by David during these days of running from Saul. So he talks about being surrounded by his enemies. He's, he'll talk about being unfairly attacked. Saul was unfairly attacking David, not because David had done anything wrong, but because Saul was jealous of, of the fact that he knew in his heart of hearts David was God's chosen king and he couldn't stand it. But many of these dark moments produce some of David's greatest moments of worship. That is so important for our lives, brothers and sisters. Um, C.H. Spurgeon, who, who suffered from depression from the age of 21, and the, the Spurgeon story is, it, it's, I mean, to cut it short, Spurgeon, when he first arrived as a very young man in a huge church in London to be the pastor, there was a fire in that church early on. A lot of the people didn't get out alive, and, and Spurgeon was unfairly blamed for that fire. That led him into a deep depression that lasted for the rest of his life till he was 56. And Spurgeon said, um, most men owe the grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties, to their suffering. 
God achieves something through our suffering that he cannot achieve in any other way. God is preparing David here to be king of Israel, not by showing him how to fight or one-armed combat. He's teaching David how to be king of Israel by suffering, by trusting God in his suffering. And you'll know that there are several occasions where David has the opportunity to take matters into his own hand and to kill Saul. Remember, Abraham had taken matters into his own hand. Jacob had tried to take matters into his own hand. Every time we try and take matters into our own hands, we sin and we don't achieve God's purposes in our lives. David doesn't do that. David leaves vengeance to God. He has several opportunities to kill Saul. He won't do it. And during these days of running from cave to cave, um, he writes worship songs from his heart. His, his, his relationship with God is solidified through suffering in a way that it could never have been had he had a straight path, a straight path to the throne. Do you see? What's God doing in your life today? What are those elements of suffering in your life that you cry out to God to be released from? Those sufferings are the very thing that will chisel out the likeness of Christ in you. There's a lady I know in my church and she wishes she could be more active for the kingdom of God, but she's got a, a crippling disease that means she just cannot. She would wish that she, she would give her whole heart if she was bodily free to be all that God wanted, wants her to be. But God has said, no, I'm going to leave you in a wheelchair. And that lady, you can see in her character that the, the character of Christ is being chiseled out, not because of her energy, but because of her weakness. God is making this lady like his own son through suffering. Can we learn that in our own hearts? Every Christian must pass through suffering. Paul says himself, Acts 13, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. Suffering is the pathway to heaven, if you like. Um, are you willing to say, Lord, I hate these sufferings. I wish you would take them away. As Paul himself said about his thorn in the flesh, I prayed three times for the Lord to take them away. But then I realized when I'm weak, that I'm strong. When, when I'm facing this suffering, I'm more dependent on God and God works in me and God chisels out the character of Christ and makes my, my speaking for Christ more powerful because of the suffering and what it achieves through me than if I went without suffering. And of course, Christ himself is the ultimate example, isn't he? He learned obedience through what he suffered. Imagine the son of God having to learn obedience and that God's pathway for him to learn obedience was suffering. We are more like Christ. We are closer to Christ. We hold his nail scarred hands as we suffer. If Christ knows Christians to some extent, then he knows suffering Christians to a deeper extent. And Paul will himself say in Philippians 3, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Um, lots of Christianity today is kind of triumphalistic Christianity. Let's get rid of the suffering element. Let's talk about victories in Christ. Let's live a Joshua story all the time. No, sometimes we have to be running from cave to cave, knowing that our crowning day is coming. Do you see that? We have to wait. We, Romans 8 tells us we are now sons and daughters of God and our, our future status will be so glorious we could barely take it in. We will be joint heirs with Christ over the whole of a redeemed creation. But for now, we must suffer with him. And Paul says in Romans 8, are we ready to share in his suffering so that we might also share in his glory? That's the lens through which we must see our suffering. As God chiseled out David's character through suffering, he chiseled out ours. Anyway, David waits through all this stage. He doesn't take matters into his own hands. Um, he leaves vengeance to God. And eventually, of course, God, God acts. God acts sovereignly to see David on the throne. At the end of 1 Samuel is um, a battle and, uh, 
and Saul, who David honors all the way through, despite the fact that Saul's tried to kill him, David keeps on honoring the anointed one of Israel. David honors the role. But Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan, David's great friend, of course, they are killed at the Battle of Galboa, and David weeps, not saying, great, I've got my throne now. He weeps. Um, he weeps at what has become of Saul and Jonathan, and he says, how the mighty have fallen. David's heart is full of integrity, waiting for God to act. He will not jump at being God's chosen one until God's appropriate time. Maybe you're waiting for something in your life to happen. I don't know what that is. A new job. Um, maybe it's a house move, something you've always dreamed of, and, and God may well be planning that for you, but there's a waiting period, a long waiting period. There was in David's life, there is so much waiting throughout the scripture. We'll find later on through 70 years of Babylonian exile, a whole nation is waiting for relief. The beginning of the book of Exodus, it's 400 years under Egyptian slavery that Israel has to wait for God to send his savior. But God always comes through. Wait, wait, wait. And God will show up in the end. So we move into 2 Samuel now. David becomes king. And I've put in brackets here the Christ of God. Um, you could literally have called David the Christ of God. This title, Messiah, that of course we intimately associate with Jesus. It was, a, it was a title for Israelite kings. It really meant anointed one. So when, when Samuel poured oil on David's head and set him apart to be God's chosen servant as king, he was messiahing him that's where the whole thing called the anointed one he became the anointed one all the kings of israel could be called the christ of god as the whole nation waited for the ultimate christ of god the ultimate chosen one who would be jesus christ the son of god himself but david of course then becomes a foreshadowing of christ and david in his early kingly years is great he brings the ark to the capital in Jerusalem. You remember, of course, that for generations, for a generation at least, the ark had been going around the desert. Um, it had no proper resting place. This ark that represented the, the presence of God at the heart of Israel, they put the ark um, in the Holy of Holies of the, of, the, of the tabernacle. But of course, the tabernacle was just a movable tent. And then, of course, David, he comes, he's conquer, he conquers Jerusalem. That's a key issue in 2 Samuel. He conquers Jerusalem, which had been a Jebusite stronghold before then. And now he says, I want to put God on the throne of Israel. I want God to be the center. He's a man after God's own heart. And as he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant, this is the greatest day of his life. This is such a joyous day. He dances as he brings the Ark of the Covenant in. And you'll remember, of course, that David's wife, Michal, looks at David dancing and think, you know, he's dancing in his underwear, as it were. And Michal thinks her husband's just making a fool of himself and she despises him. That's what we're told. Michal could not understand someone who was as passionate for the glory of God as David was. And because of that, because of her compromise, because of her dark heart, she couldn't have children. God judged her for that. And of course, he honored David because that's how God wants us to be. God wants us to have a burning passion for the glory of God. Now, of course, a Hebrew like David would express that burning passion in a very physical way. The Hebrews were very physical, dancing until sweat was pouring down your face. I'm not suggesting, suggesting we all need to dance on a Sunday. Um, I would have to say in my African connection, I, I, was, um, I was a missionary kid in Ethiopia. And uh, the Africans, well, let's face it, they just have a far better sense of rhythm than I did. And so dancing always seemed appropriate when they were expressing their love for God. However you do it, the Aberdonian way is very different, as we know, don't we? Even Pataudry is often quiet on a Saturday. But, um, 
as we express our passions for God, you may express it in very different ways. Maybe it's not outlandish, but, but make sure that the deepest passions of your heart, your deepest expression of emotion are reserved for the God that you love. And make sure that others around you, family, friends who are watching your life, don't see you deeply emotional about stuff that's nothing to do with God. That you're more passionate about a football team, you're more passionate about um, a suite for your home or a new conservatory or a new car. You're really passionate about those things. But when you talk about Jesus, it's kind of, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I'll go to church today if the wind's blowing in the right direction. So many Christians live that way. They're just like Michelle. They're just like Michelle. They're part of the covenant community. But there are so many things in their lives that are more important than Jesus Christ. David dances before the ark because the greatest joy of his soul is that God is being enthroned in Israel. Is that the greatest joy of your soul? That God is enthroned in your life, in your family, in your church. And your greatest negative emotions are when God is not being enthroned. Um, Henry Martin, the great missionary to India, he said when he, when he heard people blaspheming God, he says, I wept. I felt the... The, I, I felt for God's glory so much when he saw pagan religions that denied Jesus Christ. He, he, he could barely cope with it. I sometimes think to myself, I hear the phrase, oh my God, every day, Jesus' name being taken in vain by so many people. Do I feel that deeply or does it wash over me now? OMG has become a little phrase to use on texts and tweets. We just pass it by as Christians. Um, I think sometimes we should be complaining more. We're talking about hate speech nowadays in the Scottish government. Well, my goodness, should Christians not speak out more about how much Christ's name is taken in vain, about the blasphemy that occurs from the average working man's lips every day of life? Are our deepest passions for the Lord our God, both, po both positively and negatively? David dances before the Lord. Now, of course, you'll know some of that story too, Samuel 6. There's a scary part of that story too where the ark is being brought into Jerusalem and Uzzah, the Levite, who has been trained since birth practically to be a Levite, knows that you never, ever, ever, ever touch the ark of God. It's a very sunny day. He is holding the ark by its um, poles so that he wouldn't touch the ark. That was the whole point of carrying it on poles, that you didn't touch the ark of God. That's a sacred place. Like Moses had to take the shoes off his feet because he was on holy ground of the burning bush. So Levites did not touch the ark. This is a holy, holy, holy God. You do not mess with him. But of course, it's, uh, it's shining. Uh, the sun is shining. The poles slip from him and Uzzah puts his hand on the ark of God. He does what no Levite should ever do and God wipes him out. He, he, uh, he dies on the spot, which is shocking. And we're shocked as we read the story. You remember we said before as well, in, in new moves of God, there will be some shocking death to tell us that God is holy. He cannot be messed with. So when the tabernacle is set up and Nadab, Nadab and Abihu offer unholy fire, what happens? They get killed. Um, when Uzzah is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and this is the great new move of God, the ark coming into um, to the holy place, which will eventually be the temple. The ark of God coming into the capital city, Jerusalem, this new move of God. Um, Uzzah flouts the laws of God and gets killed. You might think that was harsh, but Uzzah was a Levite. Um, he was a full-time Christian worker, if I could put it that way. And the sins of full-time Christian workers take on a higher importance than anybody else. They have to. God's leaders. That's why when a pastor sins in a deep way, often a whole church is brought down. Um, and struggles to recover afterwards because those who are dealing with the holy things of God all the time, and I, I speak to my own heart here, you know, I'm like a modern day Levite. When I open the Bible, 
and I'm, I, I put myself in a place by the fear of God, I put myself in a place where I'm communicating the living word of God to people every week. I am dealing with holy things. My hands had better be clean. My heart had better be pure. It's not meaning I'm perfect, but pray for your pastors. Pray for your church leaders. It is an awesome thing. Few should be teachers, James says in the New Testament. Um, it is an awesome thing to deal with the holy things. Uzzah puts his hand on the ark. He drops dead. David then goes into a mood with God. So David's a man of contrasting emotions, dancing for joy at one minute, the ark coming in, then in a mood with God because he thinks it's far too harsh that God has knocked Uzzah down. And of course, the ark then gets left with a family. Um, that God blesses that family, but there's no ark in Jerusalem until finally, of course, the ark is brought up. But there's the contrasting emotions of David, which is probably why we relate to him so much. Um, he had massive highs and massive lows. He was a very emotional person. He wrote the greatest song book in the world, the book of Psalms. But we'll come later on, of course, where, where his, his emotions are expressed in an incredibly negative way in the story of Bathsheba. Before we get there, a couple of other things. 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage. It's a standout passage in the whole storyline of the Bible. We skip over some of 2 Samuel 7. I never learned that at Sunday school. That wasn't a memory verse. You know, 2 Samuel 7 doesn't speak like John 3.16 speaks, but 2 Samuel 7 is absolutely key to the, the whole rest of the Bible, just as Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 are key to the Bible storyline. In 2 Samuel 7, David, as God's king, a man after God's own heart, says, I want to build you a house, Lord. I want to build you a temple. It's, I shouldn't be living in my own wonderful palace without you having a house. And, and God is honored by David's desires for him. So God says to David, I'm not going to let you build a physical house for me um, because you're a man of blood. You've been, you've, you've been involved in wars um, and the person who's going to build this house needs to be a man of peace. It will end up being Solomon. Um, but David was not allowed to build a house for God, but God out of his grace said to David, I'm going to build a house for you. Not a physical house, but a whole kingly line. And this is where we have this magnificent 2 Samuel 7 which the prophets later build on, particularly Isaiah, build on this theme all the time, that there will be a king to sit on David's throne forever. A forever king, not just there will be a really, really good king in days to come who will be this Messiah figure. No, more than that, there's a sense that this future Messiah figure will be a superhuman figure because he will sit on David's throne forever. So he has to live forever to be able to sit on David's throne forever. And of course, there are some elements of 2 Samuel 7 that are pointing to Solomon initially as a man who obeys God. But the larger, the larger um, camera angle, if you like, is spreading from David's time in about 1000 BC through to Jesus Christ 1000 years later, where he will be uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. David is from the tribe of Judah. And uh, all the kings from David's line will lead to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And of course, we then follow the story because the story, like every story in the Bible, has, has ups and downs. We will see Judah go into exile and we think, is this the end of the Davidic kingship? And actually, the very end of 2 Chronicles, there's a line when, when the King of Judah is in prison and you think that's the end of the Judah line. Um, it simply says the end of 2 Chronicles and God looked after that king who was in prison. Um, so there was a sign there, even at the end of exile, I still have a plan for Judah. 
and the Judah king will continue. And of course, in days of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, this, this promise is, is building up and it reaches fever pitch actually when Christ comes. Who is this king who is going to sit on David's throne forever? That is the promise. So in addition to the original promise in, in Genesis 12, where God says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to send an ancestor, a future ancestor of yours will do something that will bless the entire world. Then we add to that promise, this promise of eternal king, this, this individual, this Messiah is going to be a king, a forever king. And so you can see how the rest of the Bible storyline comes about. So in a sense, this is the whole point of going into detail in these Old Testament stories because Jesus is prepared for all along. Often we start our gospel with Jesus being born in Bethlehem of Judea. And people say, so what? You know, it's his only reason for being there so that he can die for the sins of the world and rise again. Well, yes, but he's at the end of this whole line of kings. He's at the end of all these lines of, of promises that he will bless all the nations of the earth. We need to follow these promises as they come so that when Jesus comes along, we realize this is God's chosen one and this is what he will do. He will spread the gospel to the ends of the earth through the apostles he will send out following his death resurrection and ascension the bible storyline is is magnificent and it's written over thousands of years um that promise to david 2 samuel 7 is about 900 plus bc uh that there will be an eternal king to sit on david's throne and in a sense we are still living out the fruit of that promise yes jesus has come but what was the sign that he would be the eternal king well, his resurrection from the dead is the first glimpse of the fact that he is no ordinary human being, that he is this superhuman king. And Hebrews will go on to say that Jesus Christ, our great high priest, lives in the power of an endless life. His resurrection is the first promise of the fact that we have a king now who will lead us to God, lead us to glory forever and ever and ever, fulfilling a promise that is now 3,000 years old. It's extraordinary. Yeah, this lovely story of David's grace to Mephibosheth um, before the bad bits come of David's life. Um, it was the duty of a king who had overcome an enemy like Saul. And what you basically did if you were a king, you just wiped out Saul's line. That was standard practice in ancient warfare. You just wiped out any sign of enemies that you could possibly find. So that's what the expectation is for David. But actually, because David has such a close relationship with Jonathan, and because David honors the fact that Saul had been God's chosen king initially, um, David then says, is there anybody in Saul's family that I can show kindness to? So this lad, Mephibosheth, who is a relation of, of Saul's and has this dreadful accident, of course, where he's dropped by his maid and his feet are twisted. He's, he's paralyzed. And you start to see the gospel coming together. Here is Mephibosheth again. He sh he's a sworn enemy of the Messiah. He should be slaughtered by the Messiah. He is disabled. He is weak in every way and has nothing to say for himself. And what does David do? David brings Mephibosheth to eat at his very own table. That's just extraordinary. Not Mephibosheth come and be one of my courtyard servants. No, Mephibosheth come and eat at my table for the sake of your ancestors jonathan and saul i want to show my covenant faithfulness to them the promises i've made to them by bringing you into my table and of course you then see the whole panorama again of god's biblical faithfulness we have a messiah who brings enemies to his table that's what communion is about isn't it we were god's enemies ephesians 2 we were lost in transgressions and sin we were under the devil's we were in the devil's web the world the flesh and the devil they were dominating our lives 
And then God made us alive in Christ. And Christ has invited us to come and drink, drink wine and eat bread at his table. We are guests of the King of Kings. He doesn't just say, come and be one of my servants. He says, come in, be my son, my adopted son or daughter, and be joint heirs with me of the future world to come. All of this foreshadowed by David's grace to Mephibosheth, another picture of the gospel. So you see that the gospel's already written before Jesus comes. We've got hundreds of pictures of the gospel from the bronze snake to Mephibosheth to Ruth's story. All of it is pointing to the beauty of the gospel, including the whole sacrificial system where lambs were constantly offered innocent lambs for the sake of the sins of the people. The gospel is already written before Jesus comes. He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But through Old Testament history now, as we look back on it through the lens of the New Testament gospel, we can see how God was preparing all the while to send his son for the sins of the world. So if you're thinking today, what evidence is there that I should believe in Jesus Christ? And you examine his life, you examine his sayings, you examine his, his death and how he interpreted his death and then his resurrection. Can we really believe in the resurrection? It's good to look at all those things as evidence for the truth of Christ. But then you add the whole world of Old Testament shadows and illusions. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is prophet, priest and king. Jesus is the lamb who will be slaughtered. Jesus is the one who has brought enemies to eat at his table. It is all there. Isn't it beautiful? And this isn't just a theory of, you know, how I can be convinced that Jesus really is the Christ. I experience this in my heart. Every morning I open my Bible to have what I call my daily devotional. The King, the Messiah, who should wipe me out because I am a sinner, invites me to his table to feast on his word. My daily bread, that is who he is. Anyway, I could go on and on about that. It's beautiful. But let's go on to the negative stuff because we need to read about it. David's sin and decline, 2 Samuel 10 to 20. I hardly need to tell the story. But it begins, of course, with David compromised himself. You know, he, he has conquered Jerusalem. The Ark, of the, God, uh, the Ark of God is in place. Everything is kushti. Um, he's been fabulously successful in all his battles. And so David decides to take his foot off the gas. So he sends out Joab, his army commander, to take the next city and so on. And David stays at home. Bad move. And it's why he's out in his palace balcony, probably admiring his kingdom, that he sees this woman naked and bathing. And he says, I want her. I'll have her. And of course, you do everything the king says. We don't know what Bathsheba's real thoughts were in her own heart of hearts. But when David calls Bathsheba, another man's wife, he knows this is another man's wife, to come in and he beds her. I mean, he basically rapes her. That's the bottom line. We don't know whether Bathsheba is a willing participant or whether she just does what the king tells her to do. But essentially, he is stealing another man's wife and you do not say no to the king. It's horrific. David starts behaving like the kings of the world. How ironic. Um, the people of Israel had wanted a trendy king to be just like the nations. Well, David becomes a king like the nations. This is what the kings did. They took what they wanted. And there's a whole, the way the verbs are built up, it's just like Eve back in the garden. I, she saw, she wanted, and she took. David saw Bathsheba. He saw the forbidden fruit. He wanted and he took for himself. And it was disaster. And of course, David now is forced into lies. And through that, the next few chapters, he breaks every single command, apart from keeping the Sabbath. Everything else he breaks. He lies, he cheats, he steals. We know the story. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So David, rather than seeing that as a time, I really need to repent before God. No, I'll... I'll begin a cover-up story. Uriah 
come home from the battle, come and sleep with your wife, gets Uriah drunk. But Uriah will not go and sleep with his wife. He sits in David's courtyard saying, how can I go and be with my wife when the men are fighting at war? Uriah is a better man drunk than David is sober. Um, and so Uriah goes back to the battlefield and David does his other wicked scheme. How much wickedness is built up before the bell suddenly rings. Actually, David, you are sinning off horrendously against God. There's, there's almost a, a cloak over David's eyes. We can get like this as Christians. We can start to compromise and then head down a slippery slope that gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And the fact that David has to wait for months until Nathan gives him a wake-up call is staggering. That a man who could write some of the most splendid worship songs ever written, the Psalms are basically David's writing. I love you, O Lord, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. That same man, so close to God, living in the courts of angels. Yet, when he compromises, he goes down a slippery slope and is capable of murder. Because that's what it was. Send Uriah to the front line, he says to Joab. Uriah intentionally gets slaughtered. And David's hands are dirty with Uriah's blood. And you have, the, oh, it's dripping with irony, as Joab said. Um, David, let me send you my daily report. We've taken this next wall, but just to say a tragedy happened. Um, Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David says, oh, don't trouble yourself too much. Don't trouble yourself. That's exactly what I wanted. The cunning. And David in this position is a reminder of, oh, this is our hearts, brothers and sisters. Um, kill sin or it will kill you. And some of the greatest men of God have become some of the, the most depraved people because they allowed compromise to enter and they never cut it dead. Maybe you're in the middle of a sinful period of your life right now. There's something in your life that's not right. Maybe, maybe it's pornography. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a relationship with something you shouldn't be having. Maybe it's a business deal. You shouldn't be in there. If you do not cut it dead now, you who have worshipped God with all your heart, you have genuinely loved him, you have genuinely worshipped him with all you've got, you could become a dirty old man. You could become a woman who absolutely destroys her testimony in just a matter of months. That's exactly what happened to David. We are all about a month away from completely forsaking our Lord, aren't we? Peter at the Last Supper saying, Lord, I'll follow you even to death. And before the cock crows, he's denied Jesus three times. Was Peter a worse disciple than I am? Not a chance, not a chance. He led the disciples because he was a wholehearted kind of man. But can you see this? David and Peter, they're both wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ, emotional men, but their very strength is their very weakness. David's artistic capabilities, his, his love of life, his love of women led then to his downfall. It was that passion within him that should have been and normally was directed towards the things of God, worship writing and so on, his passions then unfettered in one area with Bathsheba destroy his kingdom. It's good to be passionate, but we need to put fetters on our passions when they're leading us down a line that just ends in death. Proverbs will say about the adulterous woman, um, her bed is a coffin. The bed that she has put roses and petals on and made to smell so sweet her bed is a coffin. And how many young Christian men have destroyed their testimonies, either through a physical woman somewhere or a man, with, a woman with a physical man somewhere or through an internet screen. So easy now, of course. So easy now. There is adultery being committed many times every evening by Christians across the world through their computer screen. And uh, we need to cut it dead. And if you know another Christian who's doing this, then be Nathan to them. Be Nathan to them.
you're not loving another Christian by saying, I know that there's evil in your life, but I'm just, I'm too embarrassed to talk about this. Let's, let's, let's not make a big deal about this. Let's continue our friendship. No, you can't love a person that way. You've got to get in their face and say, get back on this road. You are sinning against the Lord. Anyway, that's David's life. And, you know, here, but by the grace of God, I go, may God help me. And temptations arrive when they put the title pastor on your door, you don't suddenly become holy. And it's a struggle and you feel you're at the front line. And, and if I fall, lots of people fall. Pray for us, please, that God may keep us holy and pure so that we don't fall into David's kind of sin. But that's why these stories are in the Bible. And of course, David's kingdom starts to decline. And David says, you tried to lie in front of me. God says to David, you, you lied in secret. I will shame you publicly. That is God's judgment for David. Yes, David is forgiven. You know the story of Nathan. He comes and tells a story of the rich man who stole the little ewe lamb, David, you are the man. I mean, it could be a Hollywood movie that you are the man. David is cut to the heart and um, God forgives him. Here's the thing about David. David sinned more than Saul ever sinned. We often don't think that. David sinned more than Saul ever sinned. When was Saul guilty of, of murder and adultery and all the things that David did during the, the affair with Bathsheba? We're not told about that at all. So why is David accepted and Saul rejected? Because David knew how to repent. We have Psalm 51. David was wholehearted. And when he knew that he had sinned and confessed it after Nathan uh, confronts him, Psalm 51, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. I remember learning that when I was nine years old in my Sunday school, not having a clue what it meant. Boy, I know now. God takes broken Christians who have sinned against him and shamed heaven by their sins. But if they will repent, if they will pour out their hearts as passionately to say sorry to God for how they misused their passions and sinning against God, God will forgive again and again and again. How gracious is our God? He's forgiven me. I wouldn't be here today if he hadn't been a gracious God. David knew how to repent. Psalm 51. Do you know how to repent? Um, there is no sin that you have done that is too big that God cannot forgive you. If he forgave John Newton, the slave trader, who in his diary talked about raping black women on his galley because they were considered less than human. That's what he did. And he felt awful for it later on in life. But God forgave him. And he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. That's who we all are. Do you know how to repent? It's not news to us that we're wretches. Is it news to us that God's grace can overcome our wretchedness and uh, set us on an even path again? What time are we? We are 8.29. I will close um, two minutes mentioning Absalom's revolt. David's kingdom declines, of course. It's taken from him, and this will affect his own family deeply. Um, Absalom revolts against David. He's a good-looking guy like his father has been. David treats him harshly, unwisely at one stage. Um, Absalom... Um, gathers a group around him and comes and takes over, comes and takes over Jerusalem. And David is made to flee. I could go into a lot more details here, but it's very interesting. When David is leaving Jerusalem because his son has rebelled against him, um, Jesus came to his own and his own received him. Not Jesus faced the rebellion of his own people. David is so Christ-like in this. And he, and he walks um, across the Kidron Valley and he is weeping as he goes. He becomes the man of sorrows. Isaiah will call Jesus the man of sorrows. Here is the Messiah, the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, David, rejected by his own. 
and he weeps. And the very place that David weeps as he walks away from Jerusalem is the place that great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, will weep, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same basic area where Jesus himself will drop to his knees, Father, let this cup pass from me. I've been rejected by your people. A cross awaits me. And Jesus, the man of sorrow, weeps. And his sweat becomes like blood pouring to the ground. Um, so David becomes a picture of Christ again as the man of sorrows. But obviously, of course, David regains his kingdom. And a long story could be told here. But Absalom's revolt is finished. And you have this scene where um, Absalom is being chased through the woods. His hair, which has been his glory, um, gets caught in a tree. Absalom dies, slain by David's own men. David needs Absalom dead to regain his kingship, but oh, he is so brokenhearted because this is his son who he watches slain there. And David says such a telling line. He leans over Absalom's dead body, the body of his own son. Everything's gone messy in his relationship with his own precious son. He leans over Absalom's dead body and he said, would that I could die instead of you. But of course, great King David could not die instead of Absalom because he was a sinner himself. But great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, can die instead of us and bring rebellious sons and daughters back to God. Right. And uh, this is a place where the storyline of Israel becomes quite complicated. And I've, I've sent through a chart. I think we're going on to a new section of notes now. And you will find in that new section of notes this particular chart, which I think you will find very, very helpful when we come to kings and division of the kingdom. But anyway, let's start in one and two kings with King Solomon, because um, he is the uh, son of David and Bathsheba. That's the amazing thing. You remember that uh, David and Bathsheba's um, illicit affair led to a child being born who died. Interestingly, in that little, in that little um, uh, scene where David is reflecting on with great grief, the death of his of his child which is basically a judgment on himself um david says a line which i think is helpful for every every question about children who die before they reach the age of knowledge this is such a sensitive question but maybe you have faced it in your own life but david says of his child um you will not be able to return to me but i will go to you and it seems that David is saying of his little child who dies, um, you cannot come back to this world, to the land of the living, to be my child again here. But I am confident that I will go to you. David, of course, is confident that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23. And I have often said this to parents as, you know, um, people interpret that verse different ways, but... Um, it is my belief, according to those scriptures, that children who die before the age of understanding, um, God will have great mercy on their lives. Um, and that's a verse that I've, I've turned to myself a few times when we face some deeply emotional issues. I just leave that with you as we, as we pass. Anyway, um, they have another child, David and Bathsheba, and this is Solomon. And here is God's grace again. Um, David had to pay for his sin with the death of one child, but on in the next child, God actually calls Solomon Jedediah, which is which means my beloved one. That is how God deals with David's sin and David's repentance. He turns um, the horror 
of death into the grace and mercy of another child born who would be a king even more glorious than David. That's what Solomon's reign was about. Um, so chapters 1 to 10 of 1 Kings is about Solomon's greatness. You remember the famous story. Solomon asked God um, the thing that pleased God. He didn't ask God for great riches um, or great power. He asked God for wisdom that he might lead God's people well. Um, what a challenge this is for pastors and leaders today. Lord, give me wisdom that I might lead the people that you love, the people that Christ died for, the people that are the apple of your eye. Give me wisdom to lead your people well. And if you feel like that, then it's going to end up, you'll be on your knees in prayer all the time for these dear people that God has brought to you. God was so honored by Solomon's request that not only did he give Solomon unusual wisdom, but he also added to him the wealth and power that he didn't ask for. And I think sometimes, and I've experienced this in my own prayer life, um, when I pray for things that are God's desire that don't necessarily look good for me, when I pray for things that are God's desire, God not only gives me those things, but gives me other things that I didn't ask for um, because he's pleased with my asking for things that are in line with his kingdom. Anyway, God gives Solomon wisdom and power. And of course, Solomon is also credited with a lot of the Proverbs of Israel, the book of Ecclesiastes, where great wisdom is shown. You have the great story in Kings as well of Solomon expressing his wisdom with the baby who has two mothers and the mothers are saying, it's my baby. And the mother's saying, no, it's my baby. And Solomon comes, well, well, let me chop the baby in half and give a half to each of you mothers. And of course that brings out into the open the, the baby whose mother it really is. No, you give the whole baby living to this other woman. And, and Solomon was expressing his wisdom there um, to find out in a very difficult situation um, who the true mother was. Solomon's wisdom is so renowned that Queen of Sheba comes and visits him, sees his wealth, um, it's wonderful. And you start to ask the question as, as Solomon builds the temple and offers massive offerings. I mean, his wealth is extraordinary. And supremely wealthy Solomon will bring extravagant worship at the opening of the temple. Extravagant worship, a sign to us that if we are wealthy, unusually wealthy, if we're earning six figures plus, we don't even dare ask God the question, should I give 10%? 10% is absolutely minimum. If you're on a great salary, and thankfully I don't know any salaries that any of you are on, so I'm not getting at you personally here. But if you're on six figures plus, um, you should be thinking 50% um, so that you have enough to live on quite comfortably and you can give to God's work in a way that is just extraordinary. Solomon, there wasn't a, a safe cow left in the whole of Israel when Solomon offered up the sacrifices at the beginning of the temple. Such was his extravagant worship of God. And of course, the temple itself was a sight to behold. Even its two pillars were named. They were so prominent. One of the world or idol or rival to come into your prime allegiance with me. That's not just inviting other idols. And of course, we don't have idols today in that physical wooden sense. But we do have idols in the sense of other things we love in place of God, don't we? What is that thing or those things that you love more than Jesus today? Confess it before him. Is it sport? Is it money? It could be anything. Um, could be uh, the dreams of retirement. That you, and your default mode in the middle of the day will always, your mind in default mode will always go towards dreams of retirement, will always go towards your sports team winning, will always go towards that relationship with that person, which is the most important thing in your life. And it's not Jesus. 
Jesus will not allow any other lovers to take his place, not even your spouse, not even your children. Um, C.S. Lewis beautifully said, um, when I learn to love God more than my earthly dearest, I will love my earthly dearest more than I do today. Seems strange to say love God more than your wife. But actually, if I love God properly, he will always be teaching me and challenging me to love my wife more than I do today. It's not, God's not a threat to my love of my spouse and my family. He enriches my love for my spouse and my family and shows me how to love them properly when he is put first. You will find this in all kinds of areas of life. Put him first and your career will fall under that. Your family will fall under that. Your, your passions will fall under that. God doesn't mind us having other passions in life so long as he is on the throne. And then he will make all the other enjoyable things in life to be enjoyable for you so long as you put them in the rightful place. I'm preaching through Ecclesiastes at the minute. And it's talking about, you know, people who make an idol out of work, an idol out of pleasure and so on. And these things can never satisfy. We were made for God. God is the only one who can eternally satisfy. He wants us to enjoy his good gifts like work, you know, striking a great business deal, um, enjoying a lovely meal with family and friends. All of those are God's good gifts under the sun. But we can only enjoy them properly when we have placed him at the top of our desires. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Solomon allowed compromise and that was the beginning of the end for his kingdom. So it leads to a divided kingdom. And probably the best way to look at this divided kingdom, you end up having um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who takes over from Solomon. He wants to be the king of the whole lot, but he ends up being king of just Judah. And uh, Jeroboam will lead a rebellion and Jeroboam will be the king of Israel in the north. And from now on, for the rest of kings and the rest of a lot of the Old Testament, you have to get used to this idea that when the writer talks about Israel, he's not now talking about the whole nation. He's talking about the northern kingdom. It's often referred to as the northern kingdom because Israel is now a divided monarchy. That was God's judgment on Solomon for compromise with these foreign women. So um, Israel in the north is Jeroboam. He is leading Israel there. And in the south, you have Rehoboam leading Judah. And if we go to our chart now, we will start to see, because um, we come into a very complicated scenario now, the rest of kings will talk about, in a sense, the decline of the kings. So you've had a united monarchy. You have the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, until about 931 B.C., then following Solomon, you have his son, Rehoboam, who's the first king of Judah, the southern tribe. And from then on, it will be called Judah. And Judah, of course, is where the promised line of kings comes. Jesus will be a lion of the tribe of Judah. So in a sense, we're watching the south more closely than we're watching the north. And the, 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 the northern kings headed by Jeroboam, what basically happened was... Um, Jeroboam did not want the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, to go down south to Jerusalem as they were commanded to once a year to celebrate the festivals, to celebrate Passover and so on. This was a big thing where the whole nation came together and was united. That was an important thing. Jeroboam didn't want to lose his power. So he didn't want the people to go down to Jerusalem to worship as one nation. So he set up um, golden calves, just exactly as Aaron had done. I mean, talk about the mistakes of the past that we don't learn from. 
Jeroboam set up golden calves and says, here, Israel, here is your gods. You don't need to go down south anymore to worship Yahweh, that God that you have moved beyond now. I'll give you your own gods. I'll give you a place where you can make your own idols. I'll give you your own religious world. Just stay where you are. Keep my, my power um, in the north as, as, as Israel and don't go down south. And you have this toing and froing. And, and later on, actually, uh, in the southern kingdom, you have a king called Hezekiah. And Hezekiah will be a king who brings north and south together again after it had been separated for hundreds of years. One of the great things that Hezekiah does, who is one of the very few good kings, one of the very few godly kings, is that Hezekiah calls a Passover where the people of the north come down and Israel is united once again as one nation, albeit briefly before exile comes. But there's this issue all the way through. Um, part of the judgment on Solomon is that the, the, the nation is divided, the kingdom is divided. And, you know, you don't need me to tell you about the, the need for a united church. Um, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. That's what Jesus said, of course, of Satan's kingdom in proving that he wasn't casting out demons by, by Satan's name because he was breaking up the kingdom of Satan. But if that's true for the kingdom of Satan, it's even more true for the kingdom of God. Um, unity in the church is paramount. Don't start a little gossip group. You may be unhappy with what's going on in your church. If you're so unhappy that you have to leave, and I think there are very few reasons to leave, but maybe one good reason is because the word of God isn't taught purely or people have stopped believing in the resurrection. It has to be some core gospel issue as a reason to leave a church, um, unless you have to leave for work, of course, or something like that. But if there's not that practical reason, um, if you do leave a church, it's very tempting to start this kind of gossip group before you leave and you end up leaving damage behind in the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he died for. You may not like the church. You may struggle with where the church is going, but make sure that you don't become a divisive part of that church because it'll happen in your church. What happened in Israel as a whole um, divisions were horrific. So um, you have this chart. And, and basically as we go down the chart later on, you will then spot where the prophets come in. Um, it's in quite small writing, but I hope you can get it. Um, so you will see their um, prophets named alongside the kings. Is that right in this? Uh, am I getting this right? Yes. So if you look at the bit in the middle, you will see the names of prophets. So the first prophet mentioned here is Elijah, right in the middle of this chart. So when you see this chart, you realize Elijah comes during the reign of Ahab. You'll know some of these stories. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings. And, and you, you'll remember he was a northern king. Um, Ahab, who married Jezebel. And that's where the story of Elijah comes in. You remember Elijah has this great Mount Carmel battle. Well, that's Ahab that is the king he's against and so on. Then you note, as you go further down, um, chronologically, you'll come across Jonah here. Now, Jonah is, is the prophet who is sent away from Israel, actually the only prophet sent away from Israel to Nineveh, but you'll know he is a prophet during the days of Jeroboam too, and so on. So this is where a lot of people get confused in the Old Testament, matching the prophets to the kings. When we come to the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, that is not continuing the story of Israel. They come in to the story of Israel during first and second kings on the lead up to the exile. So we will later on match up each prophet to the kingly line that he is speaking into. So basically, all the kings of the northern kingdom, basically all of them were evil. They did not follow God. 
And so God had to send a prophet who usually was an unusual person from the margins who came in to speak oracles of judgment often or king you better watch your ways or else god's going to come and do something to you and of course all the prophets eventually said um northern kingdom you're going to go off into exile um and of course they were very unpopular southern kingdom you're going to go off into exile and all the prophets were very unpopular they were called to bring the unpopular message of god to kingdoms that were abandoning god idolatry was everywhere um, so that's the big picture we need to keep in mind, and it's worth studying this particular chart to match your prophet with the king and where they came in. So it's during the time of the decline of kings that God says, I cannot speak directly to this king anymore. This king's not listening to me. I'm going to bring my word from another prophet. That, of course, even happened in David's day. When David stopped listening to God direct, what happened? God sent Nathan. Nathan became the word of God into David's life. And now when people like Ahab and Jeroboam and so on aren't listening to God at all, God, by his grace, sends these prophets to bring messages of judgment, to bring wake up Israel kind of messages. And um, doesn't the church need that today? You know, uh, often we, uh, we want to preach love and gentleness and, you know, let's not be too harsh and let's not preach judgment when actually... The faithful Old Testament prophets, major and minor, they all came to preach a message that often they could not stomach. Um, when Isaiah was called to bring judgment, messages of judgment in Isaiah chapter 6, um, God says he would strengthen him to do it. Jeremiah, I, I, these words that I'm bringing, they make me sick. Um, but they were messages that were telling people exactly where it was at if you don't mend your ways god is going to come in judgment and we need preachers who are bold enough to say that today often in churches we're so scared of losing people that we want to preach a gentle message all the time a message of love and joy and peace well that's appropriate if that's what the congregation needs but often the congregation needs warnings the fear of the lord have we lost the fear of the lord have we lost the holiness of god like uzziah who flouted god's holiness and ended up in solitary confinement um, and died there with leprosy because god had judged him god is still the same god today who gave um uzziah leprosy who struck uzzah to the ground dead who killed nadab and abayu and so on ananias and sapphire the new testament just because gentle Jesus, meek and mild has come does not mean that God is any less ferocious on sin. Um, same thing happens to Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, post-Jesus, post the resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, as happened in the Old Testament. We need preachers of courage to say it as it is. And that includes preaching a full gospel, not come and make Jesus your friend, not um, Jesus offers you a fulfilling life. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has come and died for sins to rescue men and women from hell. He has, he has risen from the dead to give us eternal life. And now God calls all men everywhere to repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, of course, we need to speak the truth in love and we need to do that with gentleness. But Paul did not mince his words, did he? Even with people, to the people in Athens, that's straight from his, his message to Athens. God calls all men everywhere to repent. Um, even though the Greeks laughed at him for saying things like that. He did not shortchange the message. Um, people are heading to destruction. Proverbs says, hold back those heading towards the slaughter. 
And part of our job as preachers, we don't want to do this every week or all the time, but we must at some stage say, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will enter a lost eternity. You will go to the slaughter. Um, And it's my job in Jesus' name to hold you back from the slaughter. Jesus himself was slaughtered so that you wouldn't have to be. That's the gospel. I remember going and preaching at a medical convention two years ago to Christian, Christian doctors. And I preached from Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from him and said, that's the beginning of the gospel. How God has dealt with his own wrath by pouring his wrath out on Christ. And I got a long letter back when I got home about how, you know, don't speak like that. Gospel's about the love of God. I replied by saying, yes, the gospel is about the love of God, but we don't understand the love of God unless we understand how God has dealt with his own wrath by pouring his wrath out on Christ. And don't undermine then the judgment of God where he will pour out his wrath on people who haven't had their sins forgiven and are not in Christ. And we end up with, you know, Noah and the flood. What happened to people who were outside the ark? We need to, at some stage, lay it out as it is, as the prophets did to the kings. They did not mince their words. They went to prison for not mincing their words. They were sawn in two. Isaiah, by tradition, was sawn in two for not mincing his words. Jeremiah thrown in a pit. That's what faithful preachers of God, that's where they ended up. Um, Be careful if you're a preacher and everybody likes you wherever you go. I've never had that problem, but maybe it's not because my preaching's good. Anyway, um, so we're going to chart the decline of the kings. And basically, to cut a long story short, we can't go into every king, but we have this repeated, almost dulling, rhythmical thought. You know, such, such and such became a king. Jeroboam became a king, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Besha became a king, and he followed his father Jeroboam and did evil in the eyes of the Lord again and again and again. He followed in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. You hear this again and again and again. It's this depressing downward spiral. King after king after king goes deeper and deeper into rebellion against God, doesn't listen to the word of God. Anytime a prophet comes along, they want to get rid of them. They do not want to hear the word. And the northern kingdom, practically the whole story of the northern kingdom, up until exile is evil king, evil king, evil king, evil king, evil king headlined by Ahab, who was about as bad as it gets. Um, And as the king gets more evil, so they get politically unstable. When they're not listening to God's word, and Israel is in a very vulnerable position as a small nation surrounded by these power brokers, Assyria becomes the world superpower. And... um, The prophets keep saying, if you don't follow God, if you don't listen to God's word, Assyria is going to come and take you into exile. Of course, the kings won't listen, but they try and and use cunning. They try and duck and dive. They try and make alliances. And quite often the prophets saying, don't make alliances with Egypt. Don't make alliances. Trust in the Lord your God. It's the Lord your God is the only one who can free you. But they won't listen. They try and make alliances and the alliances fail. And eventually this small nation, the small northern tribe of Israel gets swamped by Assyria. That's it. And, and the northern tribe of Israel is not heard of again. Judah will have 70 years of Babylonian captivity and come out of it again so that the line of promise of Judah continues. Israel, that's the end of it. When Israel gets taken off to exile, um, Menahem, Pekah, Hosea, it gets worse and worse. Um, They are the last kings, and in 721 BC, that's a key date, in 721 BC, after warning after warning from all the prophets who were sent to the northern kingdom to prophesy, saying, Assyrian exile is coming, Assyrian exile does come, 721, and that is the end of Israel. 
God does not mince his words and does not cut short his judgments. Um, they went off into exile. So 721 BC, that's the end of Israel. And so the camera just focuses on Judah then. And you have kings. Most of them are evil kings. We have a couple of bright spots. Um, Hezekiah and Josiah are the two bright spots. Um, they lead brief revivals during the general decline of even the southern kingdom, the house of Judah. Um, Josiah, of course, becomes king at a very young age. And famously, he rediscovers the book of the law. And uh, this is basically um, the Ten Commandments and the accompanying laws. Um, Israel, uh, Judah was in such a bad place that, that these, the law of God had just become lost under dusty shelves. Um, I wonder if our Bibles get lost under dusty shelves, but that's essentially what it was. It was like rediscovering the Bible. And Josiah is so struck to the heart, he then calls for the whole nation to hear the word of the Lord. We've forgotten this word. We've gone away from this word. And then Josiah goes up and down the nation of Judah in his chariot, grinding to dust all the idols. There were idols everywhere, usually on top of high hills. That's where people used to put their idols and, and worship, like the Baals and so on. Baals were everywhere. Ashtoreths were everywhere. And, and Josiah did what a godly king should do in his passion and in his revival fervor. He, he brought the idols to naught, and that was the only way that the people could come back to God. I wonder, I wonder if that's what's holding back revival from Scotland. Because the first thing we need to do, if we're going to have revival in Scotland, yes, pray, but crush our idols. Idols of money idols of fear we don't want to share christ with anybody we're happy to be in our little church huddle we won't we won't share the gospel we need to crush those idols idols of career success i mean aberdeen oil boom town why do people come here you know yes i would like to follow jesus but so long as he doesn't take away my possessions this great standard of living that's got upper middle class living that i've got in this lovely aberdonian suburb that is the idol and 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 revival will never come until that idol is crushed are we ready to crush idols as King Josiah crushed the idols in Judah? It takes radical steps. If you look at your own heart, the sins in your own heart, God, start a revival, start the work in me. What idols in your own heart need to be crushed? Is it a love of money? Is it a love of, of possessions? Is it a love of, of friendships, relationships that are stopping you from being wholehearted in Christ? As you look at the church today, what are the idols in the church? Is it the programs? Is it the... Um, you know, we love our worship band. Um, we love our pastor. Sometimes a charismatic pastor who's doing a very good job can be the idol because the people gather around the pastor rather than gathering around Christ. The job of a pastor is to point people to Jesus Christ. Um, anything could be an idol, even subtle things, even good things. But we need to crush our idols so that God can come and make, that his spirit will, will send his fire again so that God may be all in all among us. What needs to be crushed before that can happen? That's what Josiah tried to do, but it was very brief. And of course, when Josiah was gone, he died early. Jehoiakim came and evil came again. As we had mentioned before, Hezekiah had tried to lead a revival called um, Israel Back Together Again for the Passover. That was a very important moment. You'll remember the famous story in Isaiah, of course, where Hezekiah is surrounded by the Assyrian army um it looks like it's curtains for judah um but hezekiah seeks the prophet seeks the word of god isaiah tell me what we need to do and isaiah um prays before the lord and there's an extraordinary thing that happens they'll have to close with this an extraordinary thing that happens which there is historical evidence for um 
the Assyrians are making a great boast. Your God is nothing. Look, the, the, the Assyrians are going to come and wipe you out. Give in, Israel. Uh, they set up their ramparts. They, they enclose Israel in, in their city so that they're scared, cut off the water supplies, all of that kind of thing. This was the Assyrian way of doing things. They made the people terrified before they came and, and destroyed them. And they, they started mocking the God of Israel. Big mistake. Um, and basically, God promised through Isaiah to Hezekiah, I'm going to rescue you from this and you will know that it's my hand that's rescued you. During the night, we're told that 187,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed by the angel of the Lord. You think, angel of the Lord, come on, there's another Old Testament story. But this is historical fact. Lots of other historians will give different reasons why they say they might say a sudden plague hit the soldiers, but 187,000 soldiers really did die as a, at a historical moment uh, in the early 700s outside Jerusalem. You could go to the uh, um, to the British Museum and you will see artifacts from this and in fact the king who was conquering every land and he, he has noted down all his victories Sennacherib's prism it's called he's noted down all his victories and he comes to Hezekiah and says yes I, I came to Hezekiah and made him like a wounded bird I caged him in end of story in every other story of Sennacherib's victories, it's here's how I victory, here's how I overcame the city, here's how I won the great victory. With Hezekiah and Israel, there is no great victory won. And we know from history that thousands of his soldiers were slaughtered. If you read the Bible, that's because the angel of death came. Other historians can't go down, can't go around. The angel of death went through the camp. We can't believe in supernatural things, so they try and invent other stories. But this has historical fact behind it. God rescued his people and Hezekiah should have been the kind of king that led Israel back to God, um, but he didn't last long enough. And there's a continuing downward trajectory until 586 BC. And this is my very last point. 721 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, goes off to exile. 586 BC, Judah, the southern kingdom, which has all the promises of, you know, a, a child of David, a son of David will be a king on David's throne forever. That promise is there, but Judah goes off into exile. It doesn't look like that promise will ever be fulfilled. And the whole book of one and two chronicles, the two books of one and two chronicles will be basically saying, God will keep this fire alive, even though Judah heads off to exile to Babylon. That's where Daniel and Ezekiel, they are Israelites in Babylon in exile. That's how we understand their books, their prophecies. They are in exile, Daniel, for the whole of his life. 70 years of exile, Daniel spends there, goes off when he's a teenager, never comes back to the promised land again. Um, and that's what happens 586 BC. And next week we will look at um, the prophets and how they fit into this story and the future hope. Because they basically warn, warn Israel, exile's coming, listen to God. Then they also say, but down the line, God is going to send an ultimate savior who will forgive your sins. Um, when they're in exile, the prophets tell the people in exile, this is why you've gone into exile, because you've disobeyed God's commands. But there is a future Messiah who is coming to put things right again. And then you have post-exilic prophets who, when the people come back after 70 years of exile in Babylon, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the walls. Prophets come then to say, keep building the walls. There is a Messiah going to come who will restore the great days of David. There's so much to say here, but I better end it there and we will come back next week to get into more prophets. Thanks for listening. It's five past nine. I've been a very naughty boy tonight. Hope you'll forgive me. Let me just close in prayer and I will send you off on your merry way. 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, your word, for the beauty of your word. Forgive me if I have shared it falteringly tonight, but I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to get into the kings and prophets and understand what you're saying. You are a God of love and grace and mercy, but you're also a God who brings judgment. Help us not to live compromised lives. Help us to, um, to grind into the dust the idols in our hearts that are preventing us from being wholeheartedly following you. May we be like David dancing with the ark in Jerusalem and not David standing on his balcony ready to transgress your law. Make us wholeheartedly committed to Jesus Christ and uh, send a revival. Start the work in me. We pray this for your glory. Amen.